and welcome back to another episode of The Geek Whispers. I'm Matt Broberg. And I'm Amy Lewis. And I'm John Mark Troyer. And we are pleased today to have a wonderful new guest on the show, Liz Bronson. Liz, would you mind introducing yourselves to everyone? Sure. Uh, My name is Liz Bronson, as Matt said, and I have been a recruiter for about 15 years, which blows my mind. Um, I started out, I started really out as a teacher and then I became an HR person. And then after the dot-com bust, I decided that I wanted to go to the happy side. So I became a recruiter uh, and recruited in financial services and then for VMware for almost nine years and then went out on my own as a recruiting consultant uh, so that I could streamline the process, make it easy and do it on my own. And I've been doing that for three years and I also do recruiting optimization, which is more like process consulting and basically help people be better managers, better employees and help walk individuals through the job process as kind of a job coach type. How to actually uh, make companies hire better. Uh, Actual story, uh, Liz was the very person that offered me uh, the opportunity to join VMware back in the day. So I was- yeah, I was an uh, unusual choice uh, for the role of coming You mean there into... aren't many uh, um, PhDs that were taking over blogging back then? No, no, there were not. And uh, <laughs> Liz and the hiring manager uh, took a chance on me. So I'm, I will always be uh, grateful for kind of being uh, encouraged to, uh, to explore that opportunity. So well, thank Liz- you. We are forever indebted to you for bringing John into our lives. I think everyone that listens to the show certainly feels that way. And we asked you here today because we're really interested in what it's like to be somebody that's uh, recruiting. But uh, we've had that show in the past. We've talked to recruiters. So we're asking you here today to, to help those that are in need of some advice, some steps in the, the process so that they can continue down the journey of being a great candidate for recruitment and maybe knowing what to expect from the recruiter themselves because it goes both ways. So just to start out with the simple question, if somebody is actively curious about job opportunities, where, where do they start or where do you start advising them? Sure. And I think that before you actually start a job, an official job hunt, you really have to do some soul searching. And it's good to think about what do I want? What have I liked about past roles? What have I not liked about past roles? Do I like big companies, small companies, innovative companies, more city state companies? There's a zillion different questions you can ask yourself when you're starting the process. Um, but I think it's also important to know as maybe a passive job seeker, because many people maybe aren't looking, but they're open to talking with people. And I always tell people, if a job looks remotely interesting and someone contacts you, spend 30 minutes with them. You never know where it's going to lead you. It's always good to keep your finger on the pulse, especially in technology Mm. where things are going so fast. A conversation never hurt anyone. Yeah, we should really start right there because that's an interesting anecdote already of like this idea of if somebody reaches out to you and it sounds interesting, don't stop yourself. How about Geek Whispers? Is that advice that you normally take or is this uh, a, a new light for you? Um, in, my, in my experience, sure. I, I mean, well, I like talking to everybody. Uh, I, I, I sometimes uh, get overcommitted with quote unquote coffee meetings or, or informational interviews, I, you know, and so... I do, I'm a little judicious sometimes about what I say yes to, but I'm, I'm always happy to jump on the phone with somebody. I don't normally get approached for jobs right now. I think I'm a little too unusual and people know I'm doing my own thing. But um, I don't know, Amy, you, you're, you're a, I mean, Amy, you're in continually ne- continual networking mode though, usually, right? 
I think that every opportunity to have a conversation about jobs and org charts is my idea of a good time. Um, <laughs> so, Me too. But in, all, in all seriousness, like I, I don't know if you guys, when you travel, go to the town and think, would I live here? But I, I find that <laughs> everywhere I go, I try to, I really, I'm an immersion person, I guess. So for me, this is another kind of wing of the way my brain works. So yeah, I think it's it's great to always be listening. Um, obviously, being on this podcast, I'm afforded kind of uh, shy of a recruiter. I'm afforded a, a really great position of listening to people explore their job. Um, but I think if you don't, if you don't sort of go that extra step, you can read a job about a job, or you can, um, I don't know, even write a job description. But I think until you imagine yourself in that place, and sometimes the conversation is the only way to do that. You don't get the full um, experience of what you would do and what you wouldn't do. Well, I, I'm curious, Liz. I mean, do you find that when people start to uh, approach you, are they are people often not prepared? It seems. I mean, we're so kind of. I mean, all we talk about on this podcast is being prepared and knowing your skills and trying to figure out what you want and you know all that sort of stuff. Um, finding something interesting about your current job so that you're good at it and you feel good about it. So, but do you find that a lot of people aren't really prepared for a job search? Well, I feel like people sometimes aren't prepared for a job search or even for an initial conversation. And I kind of want to back up before I go ahead of that, but like I'll just leave the nugget out there of it blows my mind when I have a call scheduled with someone and they have not looked at the website of the company that I'm oh, wow. representing. And I'm like, you did, I've been really busy. Yeah. You haven't been that busy that you have can't go to a website and find out what we do. But it, that shows me a lack of curiosity. But I would say when people get approached by recruiters, when they're out on the market or they're even passively on the market. There are three different kind of recruiters that I think it's important for people to know about because they people don't know. And of course, there's smaller groups within all this, but I'm going to keep it simple. Uh, there's the internal recruiter. Like I work for VMware. I'm a VMware employee and my job is to find people for VMware. I'm internal. I probably am paid on salary. If I get to 20 fills or one fill or 100 fills, I'm getting my salary. Maybe my bonus will fluctuate. There's a retained search recruiter. So a company hires me to find them a person, that a, a head of sales, and they're going to pay me a percentage of that person's salary. And they're going to give me money up front, maybe, maybe not after 30, 60 days, whatever I negotiate, and then the majority of the money at the end. So I am incentivized to fill this role, but I've already gotten money up front, so I've been retained. Then there's the contingent recruiter that only gets paid if they get the placement. So companies can call, I know, shudder. But so companies can call, I can, if I'm a company and I need to hire someone, I could call it out to six different retained, I mean, I'm sorry, six different contingent recruiters from different companies. And they could all be calling the same people and all they want is the fill. They're kind of throwing stuff at the wall. Oh, and so absolutely. it's really important to know who's on the other end of the phone or email so that you know what their motivation is. Because not that there aren't ethical contingent recruiters, there absolutely are. But you, right. have, I, you have to know the motivation. Yeah. I, I should recommend that people aren't doing this out of the kindness of their heart. They have yeah. an incentive and the mm -hmm. incentive will, you know, will have a huge factor on whether they're looking for the best fit versus the best immediate salary boost. 
Um, yeah. So when when doing this, when when analyzing uh, the recruiter, like how does one vet something like that? Can you just straight up ask, like, how are you paid? Yep. Or is that going too far? You can say, how are you working with the company? Like I represent Evernote right now. And people say, oh, how are you, you know, how are you working with Evernote? Are you outside or inside? And I'll say, well, mm. I'm outside, but they're treating me as an inside person. Interesting. So Interesting. you know that I'm getting paid. Or I might say, well, I'm a contingent. I'm, I, I don't do contingent search, but I'm contingent on this or something. So you can ask the person. And if you know the verbiage, you can ask straight up. Most mm. people don't know the verbiage, so they, don't know, they just want to know if you're inside or outside. But that doesn't get to the meat of the matter. That sounds like well, a, that a nice secret to keep in your pocket. Yeah. Um, what were you yes. going to say? Well, yeah, no, that makes me want to jump in. I realize my level of ignorance about all of this. Do you find that people who have worked with recruiters once continue to work with them throughout their career? I never have worked with a recruiter. So uh, I'm just sort of curious. Do you find that people, once they get in that track, they they learn some of this lingo or language? Or or is it, I don't know, what what keeps some of us in, in the game and out of the recruiter game? So that's another myth of recruiting is that people think that we're like um, agents, like a, a Hollywood agent. Like show me the money? Us, yeah, like, oh, I want to I get into Google. Can you get me there? No, Google, I don't work with Google. You know, I can maybe talk to you about your resume or something, but that's I'm going to do that out of the goodness of my heart. Like people, I can't, I can only put you in front of the clients that I'm working with. Or maybe if you say, oh, you're connected to John Smith on LinkedIn, I can introduce you to John. But I can't. I have no power of, you You like a job at Facebook, I'm going to introduce you to the Facebook recruiters and get you a job. That's sure, not sure. Yeah, you're, you're not u- universally recruiting for all people just because you have recruiter in your title. That, no. And that's people a, that's think a good that. Interesting. And so, so people will... so. I, you know, I've done a lot of product management, product marketing, recruiting in my career. And so therefore I have a lot of people in product management, product marketing. So often people who are in that field, when they're starting to search, they'll call me and kind of be like, ask me what I have. Hmm. Okay. And yeah. if they're interested in it, great. And if they're not, that's fine. But I would say, Amy, to answer your question the long way, if you're, if you depend on only one person to get you jobs, you're selling yourself way short. You should instead be targeting companies and maybe trying to figure out who's working with those companies because they're the ones who can get you in at that time. Hmm. I actually wanted to go back to the contingent recruiter piece. And I, I booed when, when you said contingent recruiter, which, which isn't fair, right? Cause the, the many people are contingent recruiters, uh, who are very fine, but they are the contingent recruiters are the recruiters that you know, often the bad stories are told about. Um, and maybe we p- pull that apart a little bit. Uh, you know, some of them, right, the reason is, right, they only get paid when you they place you and they don't really care uh, from, from that perspective where they place you. They just want to place somebody. And so what are some other, mm, I mean, should you never work with a contingent recruiter? And, and are there any other signs, like if they, if they don't, aren't working with a specific company, but they just want your resume and then they say they're going to, they're going to send it around. I mean, are there, are, do, do you, first question first, do you ever want to work with a contingent recruiter? Absolutely. If they, I mean, I've done contingent searches and I'm really ethical about it and I want to find the best people for them. And I take them on in my mind as if they're retained or if I'm, mm-hmm. I'm bored and I try to make them exclusive when I was doing them to get that 
relationship. But you have to just listen to the person and hear what they have to say, but you also have to, you cannot trust, a recruiter's a salesperson. At the end of the day, we are sad. <laughs> I tell people that I'm a legal pimp. I, I'm selling the company to people and I'm selling people to the company. So I'm, I'm in people sales. Hmm. So I'm a salesperson. Can you trust salespeople? Not always. And you can trust them to put whatever situation they're in in the best light. Yes. And that's what you can Absolutely. trust. Um, and, Absolutely. And that's, and that's good and, to know, uh, to, to yeah. just frame, frame it in the way that basically, yeah, you've got a job to sell uh, mm-hmm. you, the, the recruitee, if that's the right term, in the best light and yeah. uh, the company in the best light and make that match. So. Uh, right. I can see see that being a really interesting challenge. Um, speaking of which, when when working with recruiters, um, there there's sometimes I don't know. We hear stories as as people uh, geek whispers that are connected to a lot of people that are going through uh, career changes about just really awful recruiting processes. <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe not to frame it in uh, negative anecdotes, but maybe just tell us a little about like. What can you do as a recruiter if the situation behind the scenes is a little bit too chaotic, like where people are stop and go on on wrecks and things like that? Um, not much. I want to say one more thing about can you trust contingent recruiters? Oh, so, sure, please. Net it, net it. Not all contingent recruiters are bad. It's just the one you have to be the most wary of. But there are some amazing contingent recruiters out there that do really good work, and there's all kinds of different models. So. But to your question, um, yeah, about... we can we can reframe it. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it, when when thinking about uh, being in a challenging recruiting situation mm-hmm. where uh, maybe you know that there's some tire fires uh, behind the scenes and mm-hmm. the uh, the person being recruited is trying to figure out what's going on, how do you um, how do you manage those situations? Well, I'm honest to a fault. So, like I told a candidate today. They're doing a new product. They're like that company, not one of them that I mentioned, different different company. But they're in chaos right now. There's management change. There's a merger. It's chaotic. Like I told the candidate that. I said, if that doesn't work for you, don't do it. So you're going to get recruiters that are super honest because at the end of it, I want a good placement. I don't want the person calling me in two months and quitting. Some recruiters are liable to pay back if someone leaves after a short period of time. Oh. So. Most recruiters want it to be a good fit that's going to last at least three to six months or they're going to have to pay some money back. So um, in a case like that, I I want to be honest and I think all good recruiters want to be as honest as possible. You know, maybe a little sugar coating, but we want them to know what they're getting into so that they can back out before it's done. Because it's well, way worse. And you right. lose your reputation too. I, you, sure. know, you want to be hired again and you're not going to get hired if you, if they don't like who you present. Right. Well, Liz, I've, I've seen some recruiting processes go south and occasionally, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it has been, I mean, the process itself, not necessarily the, the placement, but you know, the, sometimes it's been the recruiter themselves that they stop returning calls or something. But often um, I've seen it as often the hiring manager, right? goes away. The hiring manager stops looking through the piles of paper in their desk or their, their email folder, or they, or there is an organizational change or somehow the, the budget changes or something like that. So as a recruiter, I mean, are you, how often, I mean, yeah, how much power can you have to, to, to kind of kick the hiring manager? If it is just, if it is not a budget change or a strategy change, and it's just the hiring manager is slow about getting back to you about feedback or about making a decision. I mean, is, is that part of your role too, is to kind of try to 
keep everything moving and keep the candidates still interested, et, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. I mean, I used to say at VMware I was a professional nag because I would be showing up <laughs> at their office at five o'clock when I knew they were back from meetings. I'd be leaving post-its. I'd call, I'd email, and they'd be like, oh, I just have to get back to you. But yeah, it's a major issue. And as a good recruiter, you keep your candidates up to date in a perfect world. But I mean, right now I probably have 50 candidates between all the jobs I'm working on. Can I keep everyone up to date with everything? I can try, but let's be honest, I'm not going to. So how, how often is too frequently to check back with you if I'm working with a recruiter? Well, and yeah. So, yeah, that's a, such a good question. So some, I mean, I've, I've been so busy lately. I've been saying, check in with me by close of business Tuesday if I don't get back to you because I don't want to leave you hanging. And so sometimes I will do that and others recruiters will as well, but we'll do that in order to make sure they don't leave anyone hanging. Um, I think it's fine to check in about once a week. And I think it's incredibly important to know as a recruitee, this person, whether they're a great recruiter or a not so great recruiter, they are the gatekeeper. They are the one that's going to put you in front of the hiring manager. They are the one that's going to advocate for you or not. And so you have, if someone told me really early in my career that you always be really nice to the IT guy and the receptionist because they have all mm -hmm. the power. And I would say in the recruiting process, the recruiting coordinator who gets everything set up and the recruiter have a lot of the power because they either put you forward or not. So when someone's really rude to me, talks down to me and is obnoxious, yeah, they're not going to get past me and they're not going to go on in the process. That is a, that's a great take home for any listener out there. You know, definitely respect the recruiter as the gatekeeper, right? Like, uh, but um, taking that into account and recognizing the importance of that, um, what are things that are not the right uh, topic to be negotiating with the recruiter? Are, are there some factors of the job um, beyond the description, of course, but I mean, you know, more compensation and things like that, that recruiters do have a say in or do they generally don't? They generally don't have a say. They can advise, you know, we, we're the ones who know the market, so we're definitely advise on how to pay the person. But like if a company has a 20% bonus structure, mm -hmm. I can't get you a 25% bonus. So <laughs> I'm definitely part of the negotiation. Um, and, you know, usually the first offer isn't the best and final, unless that's said, another little nugget. But oh wait, wait, um, can you say that one more time? I don't want to I lose said, that. Usually, the first offer that you get is not the best and final, unless somebody says this is the best and final. Hmm. So and unpack that, that for us. Um, so if you're somebody you jazzed about a job offer, mm -hmm. it it lands on your plate. Uh, you're saying that in most cases, it would be wise to say, "Give me some more." <laughs> and if they say they can't, then they can. You have to decide whether or not it's right for you. But usually the first number is not, I, I'm usually willing to go up. And that's a decision that's made by the business and by HR. You know, that, this isn't the recruiter doing it. But There's in general a, with offers, you a little expect negotiation. Mm -hmm. There's a little margin at the top. Yep. And I think often engineers are a little bit afraid to do that, yep. but nobody will think bad of you. The worst thing they'll do is say, well, no, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. I can't give you 15,000 more, but you know, I can, I can give you five. Right. Or I can give you 2,000 more shares of stock. Or there's, there's usually something that can move a little bit. 
So, hey, Liz, I have another thing that's kind of a myth that, that gets passed around that, or maybe a pet peeve. Uh, when people are like, well, the first person to mention your current salary, you know, uh, loses. And so you should, when the recruiter asks you for a salary, you should never tell them. You should like, and you, there's all these like hacker news kinds of advice of like all the different things you should say so as not to tell them your salary. I, and I, I, I think that's a little dumb, but uh, I think you're sighing. So can you explain why that is not a great strategy? Oh my God, John, I'm so glad you brought up like my biggest pet peeve in this process. Like, I don't want to talk about it. Well, salary is nothing to be ashamed of. If you make 20% less than you want to make, there is no problem with saying right now I make 100, but I want to make 120. I think that's fair for me. You're putting it out there. Like, again, I'm all about treat others how you want to be treated. Honesty is the best policy. Tell me what you want so I can get it for you. If you tell me and if you tell me you want 150, I'm going to tell the hiring manager in HR that you want 150. If they can't do it, I'm going to come back and say 150 won't work. If you say, give me your best offer, and then I give you 130, and then you come to me and say you're insulted, well, everybody just wasted a bunch of time. So I think the whole don't talk about salary thing is bull. And I'm, I'm so anti because be honest, say what you want. If they can do it, they'll let you know. If they can't, you can talk about it. Yeah. Unless I'm, I'm really curious, um, and I don't know how many of your clients are men versus women, but do you see mm-hmm. a gender difference? That's such a good question too. Um, <laughs> yes and no. I think I think I I see it. I I'm trying to think back, and and of course, right now I'm working on such a variety of roles from like, you know, call center people to a head of sales. So it's all across the board. Um, I think it's pretty even. Um, you know, I I think people are pretty even across the board. I get it from both. Usually though, I can get a man to cave on it. If a woman says, I'm not going to give it to you, then she's really not going to give it to me. Whereas a man, <laughs> that, that sound, let's not use that sound, but, but um, if, if a man says no, and I explain what I just explained, usually they'll understand and go forward. Mm. What about in the negotiation process? Uh, you know, cause that's some, something that gets talked about and, and, and as a supposition that uh, men are better or more aggressive at negotiating or asking for more uh, than women are. Yeah, I see that. Hmm. I see that a lot. And it also depends. Like the salespeople are going to always ask for more. The PMs <laughs> are usually going to ask for more. You know, the, the tech writers probably not. Um, <laughs> okay, so it might be a little job category-wise. Definitely. There definitely is. Um, and frankly, with a salesperson... A lot of hiring managers see it as a red flag if they don't ask for more because <laughs> they're not a good negotiator. Yeah, no, that's, that's so point. interesting. Uh, Amy, what was your takeaway from that? Uh, I know uh, equality of pay is, is of interest to you. Um, I, I think it's the, the ask for what you want, but uh, the challenge there is I, you know, I guess it, and Liz, you'd have to tell me this, but work with a recruiter that it can help you ask appropriately. Because I think the other issue is that, um, and again, this is just talk in the sisterhood, but uh, if we don't have mentors that can help us frame the conversation appropriately and know what the right ask is, we can stay in the 70 cents on a dollar group. Absolutely. We need to know our value. And that, I mean, that goes for everybody. But ask for what you're worth and ask for what's fair and, you know, and don't let anyone tell you differently. 
Okay, well, maybe to stick with that point just for a minute longer, um, how does one start to explore what they're worth? Um, I mean, there, there's always a sense of, you know, ask other people with the job title, but I think location and seniority um, have a huge effect on these things. Um, so any advice you would give to somebody who's trying to start to get a benchmark on how much they should be asking for? Mm-hmm. I, I think location and seniority, I mean, location is so big. Um, because you can't, a Bay Area versus an Omaha salary, you just can't compare. Um, and so you have to really ask around. And I think, I wish, I wish that salary wasn't such a taboo topic and that we could just talk about it. Um, but I think you have to ask people that are in similar roles and say, I, I, this sounds awkward, but I want to ask you this because I'm about to start a job search and I want to be a senior product manager and I need to know what a senior product manager at a startup makes. And sometimes you also have to know your expectations. So if you're going to go from a from Google, you know, a giant company with tons of money that pay their people really well to a small startup, you're going to take a salary cut. And you have to know that Part of starting the job search and kind of taking it back to where we were earlier, but part of starting that job search is knowing what you're willing to give and get. So you can't expect your giant cash rich company salary at the Series A startup, but you can expect more equity or, you know, bigger picture, a lot of other different things. I was going to ask of how you help. uh, It sort of does take us back to the first question, how to get started. Um, if people are changing jobs because they want increase in pay versus um, job satisfaction or a title, how do you help coach people depending on which card they lead with? If it's all about money, then I would go to your boss, go, try to get an internal raise. Because what's going to end up probably happening is that you would go get an, another offer, come back, and you'll get the raise anyway. And so I think, again, it's just about honesty and talking to the right person at your company and really fighting for yourself to get paid fairly. Because if, it's, if that's the only thing, then it, you probably shouldn't do a job search. You should probably try to get it internally. See, that's fascinating because I've never, ever seen it work internally. <laughs> yeah, with, without... Until I mean... you have another offer. Until you exactly. have another offer and that you're willing to walk for. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the big one. You've got to be, yeah. you've got to get the other offer and you've got to be willing to walk. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, my ears are full of stories like that of people being held at a, a grade level, a price point, you know, with the classic, oh, you're at the midpoint of your salary range. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the sort of magical HR uh, jargon that none of us maybe on the other side know, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> Oh, and yeah. then the hands are waved and then you come back with an offer and suddenly the midpoint doesn't matter anymore. But at least I'll speak for myself, but if I did that and I said, and I went to my boss or whomever was the right person to go to and I said, I've got an offer from another company for $20 an hour more than I'm making now. And they said, oh, now we can raise you. I, I would resent them and I wouldn't want to stay anyway. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that. I mean, in your pers- people who come and go through the search, but then uh, get a counter from their original companies and and stay. I mean, do you is your as you follow those people? Do you hear back then later that they d- didn't end up staying, or what's the the typical? They're gone. Yeah, is that sustainable? They're oh, gone within a year. Um, because ultimately, when you're open to moving, 
you are probably not happy with something other than pay. Again, if it's just pay, then go for it directly. And if they can't get it for you, then there's probably bigger issues that are underneath there. But if I'm open to looking, I maybe don't like my boss, I maybe don't feel like there's growth, I maybe don't think the product is gonna sell, whatever it is. So I start looking around and if then they pack back up the truck of money and I'm like, ooh, truck of money. Maybe for a month or two, I'm living the high life, so I'm feeling good. And then after that, I still don't like my boss. I still don't think I have career development. I still don't trust the product. And all of a sudden, that truck of money isn't as shiny. And so I'm still upset, and then I'm going to start looking again. Well, I, w- I want to go back, uh, maybe not to the beginning, but the step we took after that where he said, we'll always be looking, you know, always be willing to have that conversation. So uh, how, how do you maintain both mindsets, right, of being dedicated enough to stay in the job, but also be willing to new experiences? Uh, they just seem like they're incompatible. Totally. I would say always be exploring, not looking. Oh, so- see, I'm... I'm going to take a counter on that one and say, I think if you're looking and then you often find out it's truly better at home, the grass stops being less green when you scratch more than the the job description. Well, that's, it's such a great point. So I, I'll tell a a personal story. So I, I often equate job searches to dating. You're trying to find a mate, right? And when I met my husband, I, I had just joined a dating site for the first time and I was, I was a lot of free meals. It was great. (laughs) <laughs> but on the first day that I started this, I had a lunch date with one guy and I had a dinner date with my current husband. And then I went on a few more dates and then I went on a date with my current husband. And I'd be like, oh, I like that Eric guy better. And like he won out because I was comparing. And it's the same with job search. Exactly what Amy just said. It's like, oh, I just had that conversation. That sounds interesting, but I, I like where I am. Or I explore this, but I like where I am. So it gives you a counterpoint. And often makes you recommit to where you are. And and so you, you stay married to your current job. Yeah, not but, that we're advocating affairs to stay married. No. Just let the Geek Whispers listeners know. <laughs> Let's this take the bit. analogy too far. I, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't having affairs. I was just starting dating. I'm kidding. Uh, no, no, no. But it, it's true. Yeah, I, yes. But I think that it's important to be able to see what else is out there and to know you're okay at home or to say, oh my God, that's out there. I didn't even know they they were doing that. I want to be a a part of that. That's for me. Mm, mm -hmm. I I will say as people look around though, I I see just the difference in my own uh, recruiting processes like Mm -hmm. year over year that early on when I was looking, I just really took things at face value. Like when talking to somebody about the job opportunity and just being super excited uh, because you don't see any of the ugly spots over the phone uh, Mm -hmm. in like an hour long interview. But if you, uh, I mean, with a few years and a few different companies under my belt, I have this feeling that when I talk to somebody I know they're they're presenting the, their best selves mm-hmm. and I, I can start extrapolating all the ways in which they suck mm-hmm. <laughs> and now the job might suck so um, w- what what about that angle of it like how do you maybe suss out if there are some uh, red flags or even yellow flags that aren't immediately visible on the surface do you have any tricks totally so first of all no matter who you're talking to, whether the recruiter, the hiring manager, anybody on the panel, nobody's life changes when you take a new job more than yours. So you have to make sure it works for you. And that means you have to ask every single question you can think of 
that you need to know to know if you'll be happy in that job. So people are always worried, like, I don't want to ask too many questions. Why not? Your life is going to change if you do this. You better know all the information. So if you think, well, you haven't come out with a, a new version of your product in eight months, why not? Yeah, ask that. And ask it to multiple people and hear their answers and listen to their answers. And you're interviewing them. Oh, that's bold. And ask follow-ups. Oh, yeah. But you ask follow-ups. Ask questions of why hasn't this happened or do you have something new in development? Do it respectfully. Don't be, you know, a jerk about it. But you've got to, you have to have all your questions answered. So when you sign to join that company, you feel really good about it and you don't have open-ended questions. And it also starts an honest dialogue, which is exactly what I assume everybody wants from their employer. So I, I have to ask the geek whispers because we have all changed jobs uh, since we were on the podcast. Did you guys find yourself ad- accidentally podcasting during your interviews? Like asking questions? Well, <laughs> Yeah, I, I can I can definitely say yes that <laughs> I, I'm a lot more active of a participant in the job interview process and also I think we've talked to so many people about different strategies that I don't feel rushed to a conclusion very quickly anymore. I kind of take my time, talk to a lot of people, write it down, um, talk to our network in particular. I think we learned a lot from guests like Kenneth Hoy who have brought in circles of trust to really uh, balance out people's overexcitement or underexcitement for things. Um, well, so those elements also, are huge. And I bring it up because to Liz's point, I think uh, staying engaged without being obnoxious. And it, it, I don't know. It, I'm just reflecting on the process when I changed way back when. And it did, it did feel a little bit like I was, I was interviewing. I can't help myself, but, uh, but I think it puts that right tone, right? It's genuine inquisitiveness. You're trying to get to the bottom of something. Mm. Yeah. I, boy, well, I don't have, you know, I can't answer this question because I haven't had that many job interviews. Uh, well, you've been interviewing <laughs> clients to be fair. Yeah. John. Yeah. So you, it's just a slightly different side of the microphone, but <laughs> not everybody with, uh, uh, their purse strings, uh, whether with their hands on their purse gets John Mark Troyer to work for them. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> must be doing I mean, some sort of like all that thinking fast and slow and, and, and stuff like that. Right. You know, you know, immediately in the first conversation, is this going to be a, a challenging relationship or, or are we, you know, are we bonding? So, and sometimes you, you end up, you know, in a client relationship, even though you know, it's going to be challenging because you think there's some other things that, that will come out of it. Uh-huh. And I think that is it, like to that point, as a job seeker, you want to be looking at the company culture from that first call, you know, it, talk about candidate experience and all that. I mean, you want to hear like, what's the tone? Is it fun? I have one client that's super fun and the, the hiring manager is really laid back. And like, that's my tone in the email in my, when I email or reach out to people. And I tell people that in the interview, but you want to hear the tone and see if that reflects who you are. If you want a laid back place, great. If you don't, if you can't stand when things are a little loose, don't go there. Look and see how your process is going to get a feel for how it's going to be to work there. Yeah, and maybe read between the lines a little bit along the way. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to have a good candidate experience because maybe your company is awesome, but your can- your interview process stinks. And it so that's what that's the only evidence people are going to have about your company. Why would they want to go there? 
Right. Hey, Liz, so we, we've talked a, a little about um, recruiting in the abstract here just generally, but uh, I think something that a, a lot of our listeners have been uh, poking their heads out and asking more about are, are some specific titles. So one uh, that John mentioned you interact with quite a bit is a product marketing manager. So mm-hmm. can you maybe give us just a, a little intro to, to what you're looking for as you're picking a product marketing manager? What kind of backgrounds might be advantageous? What skills? Sure. And I I think product marketing managers and product managers, um, they have this ability to be technical and non-technical at the same time. Hmm. Um, So when I'm looking at for product marketing, I'm looking for somebody who is going to understand the product and know how to bring it to the market, know how to talk to the market, different markets and different audiences about the product. So while they're not a salesperson, they're thinking go-to-market strategy. They're thinking pricing and packaging. And of course, every company does things slightly different. But for product marketing, I want someone ideally who is technical enough to really understand the product, but also has the business side, business savvy enough to be able to talk to customers, potential customers, know what the market needs to know about this product. Do they need to know about feature A or feature Z? Which one do they, which, what is important for us to highlight? And maybe there's something that's important to highlight for one audience and something else to highlight for another. So that this person is going to have that strategic mindset and be able to figure that out. Also have evangelism yeah. skills and all that. Interesting. Okay. So, and just to oh, be wait. really, cl- can I jump? Sure. Okay. Um, all right. You said the E word. So uh, I have to ask you, if somebody comes to you and says they want to be an evangelist, what do you say? Good luck. No, I say, um, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but I, I say when, if someone says I want to be an evangelist, I say, what do you mean by that? Do you want to be a written evangelist, verbal evangelist? Do you want to be on the road all the time representing the company? Do you really, do you really mean by that, that you're an Uber technical marketing manager and you're writing white papers and you're doing podcasts and blogs and all of those things about the product? And then I'm going to say, what's your area of expertise? Because usually an evangelist is a person that has a certain expertise and therefore they are the uber expert. And so what does that look like? Or they could just be someone who's the evangelist for the company in general. Like, you know, I think of John at VMware was kind of like the character, Uh, but he knew his stuff and he was smart and technical. So I think that there's a lot of... um, I think there's a lot of different ways you can skin that cat and it just depends what the company is looking for in their evangelist and what stage the company's at. But often they're kind of in that sales, as you all know, that sales, marketing, engineering, hybrid right. universe. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough, I mean, we, it, we've chewed on that one a lot. Um, and it's a tough career path too, is where do you go next after you do that? And what do you, if, even after you solve the, what, what are you getting yourself into? But mm-hmm. so Liz, for, for both, uh, so sometimes for PMMs and PMs, you know, the technical person is like, well, that's, I'd like to, I'm interested in that. I want to do that. But I've also, I've also been, I've talked with recruiters and this, this particular one wasn't a great experience, but, um, you know, who was like, well, this candidate Although they've been a, a, a CTO and, a, and a, you know, many other really great, interesting titles, they've never had the title of 
product marketing manager. So I don't know if we can hire them for this role. So, uh, you know, one of those chicken and egg things. If you do not have, say, product management or product marketing manager on your resume, you know, are there are there any other like things you could do to kind of develop some of those skills? I know these are two different roles and we're kind of lumping them together, but, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, where's the step in? So I would say the key to both of those is strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. And so if you're an engineer that's then been an engineering manager, so you've been part of building a product from the beginning, but you really haven't put yourself in the customer's shoes or thought about what does it mean? What do we need in a product from the whiteboard? Not how do I build it, but what do I need to build? Or what do what does the universe need in this space or this niche? niche? I think that that's what's missing in your product experience. And I think the best place to move into product management or product marketing is within the company that you're at. It is very hard to go from an engineering role to a product role at a different place because of that leap. But if you can kind of embed yourself or get to know your local PM or PMM and mirror them, see what they're doing, maybe say, hey, is there something I can work with you on? Then you're going to get that experience and see that PRD or MRD, that's product requirement document or marketing requirement document, to see that process and see what goes into it. So I think it's a great opportunity to find a mentor and learn from them. Because making the leap without that, often people make the leap, they, they're an engineer and then they go get an MBA and then they make the leap. But getting that practical experience is huge in, in making the successful job. That's, that's really great advice, Liz, um, to, to look internally. And uh, I just want to throw it out there as well, like with the advent of you know, Agile and Scrum being uh, part of a lot of engineers' day-to-day lives, um, there's always this invisible role uh, floating around, whether somebody has the title or not, of a product owner. Um, <laughs> if you if you volunteer to be a product owner or to help think of somewhat of the strategy of what the team is building and represent the customer, you can kind of sneakily get that experience uh, while also still being a software engineer. I, I did that a bit myself as a developer advocate, and I've seen others do it as uh, developers and then volunteer to be product owner and then from product owner to product management so that's great so uh good i'm I'm glad we were able to explore that a bit more uh really great tips on what people can do as they're going through the recruiting phase but um at the geek whispers we always kind of round the corner at the end of the show with uh with bringing it somewhere else amy do you have a question to ask of course so Liz, of, of all the, the positive advice you've ever given people, if somebody comes to you, uh, what is the one thing you would counsel them? Don't ask, don't do this. This is not the way to conduct a job search. What would you tell them? Don't ever do this again. Don't be negative Nelly. Don't complain about your boss, your old company, your this is what stunk, this is what stunk, this is what stunk. You're making a first impression. And if you come out, as a complainer, then who wants to hire a complainer? So I would say keep things positive, figure out how you're going to, if there was a negative story, you don't need to tell it all. So keep things positive. 
Oh, I like that. I have this mental image of folders on your desktop, like with the complainer file. <laughs> you don't want to get filed in that bucket. No. Yeah, it's, it, it's it, absolutely it, dope. It's not on your desktop. It's in the. It's beside the desk. Uh, oh, I the see. Can. <laughs> it's called the garbage can. File. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, but on the flip side of that, just I think you know from the beginning, like when you're starting your search, look at your network, look at who you know, look who's at interesting companies and start talking because you probably have your next job in your Rolodex. That's, that's absolutely a great point. All right. Any other thoughts, John, Amy, before we bring it to the close? I'm good. Cool. Well, well, Liz, this was incredibly insightful. I hope uh, Geek Whisperer listeners will feel that much more informed and empowered to make great career moves by knowing a little bit more of the verbiage of recruiters. So thanks and being uh, for coming on and being our decoder ring. And uh, we look forward to seeing you out there. If people want to follow you or follow up, where's the best place to find you on the internet? Um, I would say Liz at LizBronsonConsulting.com or on Twitter, I am LizBConsult. Awesome. Well, it's been so much fun talking to you guys and demystifying. Well, we sincerely appreciate it. And uh, this has been another episode of The Geek Whispers. Over and out. You've been listening to The Geek Whispers Podcast. Tune in on iTunes or Stitcher for regular stories of technology careers, cultures, and lives. Share it with a friend or invite us to an event through our website, geek-whispers.com. Find us on Twitter at geek underscore whispers or at jtroyer, mjbrender, and comsninja. Thanks for listening and see you next time.